Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Throughout their long history, the New York Rangers have been fortunate to employ some of hockey's greatest goalies, including recent stars such as the King, Henrik Lundqvist, and Mike Richter. But there were two whom most hockey fans don't remember at all, Dave Kerr and Chuck Rayner. And a third who is one of the game's all-time greats, but is probably best remembered for his stellar play between the pipes for the Montreal Canadiens, Gump Worsley. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the careers of all three while they toiled for the New York Rangers, Dave Kerr, Chuck Rayner, and Gump Worsley. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and Happy New Year to everyone. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you can be here. Today, we're going to focus on hockey and three goalies in particular, Dave Kerr, Chuck Rayner, and Gump Worsley, each of whom are a main focus in a new book written by New York Rangers historian George Grimm. Each of the three have really good stories, and I think it's fair to say that Kerr and Rayner are names that are, well, very rarely, if ever mentioned while Worsley is better remembered for the seven years he spent in Montreal winning four Stanley Cups than he is for the ten years he toiled between the pipes for the New York Rangers. So here are a few interesting facts about each of the three goalies that I'll be talking about with George. Dave Kerr played seven years for the Rangers winning 157 games, losing 110 and tying 57. He was the Rangers goalie in 1940 when New York won the Stanley Cup. In fact, he played a total of 11 years in the league and suited up for two teams no longer in existence, the Montreal Maroons and the New York Americans. He finished his career with a 2.14 goals against average. Of course, his best years came while he was with the Rangers, and despite all of his great stats and the fact that he actually finished his career 55 games over 500, he is not in the Hall of Fame. Chuck Rayner, who spent 10 years in the NHL, 8 with the Rangers, and 2 with the Americans, one year as the New York Americans, one year as the Brooklyn Americans, he never ever had a season in which he won more games than he lost. He never won a Stanley Cup, and he finished his career with a 2.98 goals against average, and he is 
in the Hall of Fame. And George and I will discuss that. And then there's Gump. Again, not necessarily a forgotten hero, but I think he is most definitely remembered better for his time in Montreal, where he won four Stanley Cups. In fact, Gump's record in those four Stanley Cup runs is an incredible 29-6 and six with a minuscule goals against average of 1.86. But we're going to focus more on his time with the Rangers, with whom he played 10 seasons. Now, before all of that, just a few notes and reminders. Remember, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Please give us a follow and let your friends and family know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram and look for our page on Facebook. Every post is filled with facts and figures and info on the podcast. Also, please check out Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web at sportsfh.com. This site is filled with information on guests, links to more information about the forgotten heroes I discuss, and so much more. Plus, you can ask questions, make comments about the show, and suggest forgotten heroes you'd like to learn more about. That's sportsfh.com. And as always, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating wherever you listen. All right, thanks for that. And now, let's get to today's show with George Grimm, who has just released a new book called Guardians of the Goal, a comprehensive guide to New York Rangers goaltending. George, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Glad you could join us again. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, tell us about the book itself, Guardians of the Goal. Where did this idea come from? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a longtime Ranger fan, and I'm a former goaltender, and I've always been interested in the guys who play golf for Rangers. And uh, looking through the roster of goaltenders, um, you know, I knew all the names, but there's a lot of guys I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So I started doing research, and um, that's how the book came about. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write? Um, a little over two years, I guess. You know, in several chapters, you designate someone as a franchise goalie. How right. did you make the distinction as to whether or not someone was considered or is considered a franchise goalie. What makes them a franchise goalie? Uh, they they had to be uh, uniquely identified with the Rangers, first of all, and they had to set the bar for the the goaltenders who would follow them. They mm-hmm. would all have to have to uh, be be um, the main goaltender of their era and uh, set set records or tie records and, you know, set the bar for those who would follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I have, um, I have a uh, David Kerr, uh, Chuck Rayner, Gump Worsley, Ed Jockerman, John Davidson, John Van Beesbrook, Mike Richter, and Henrik Lundqvist as the franchise goaltenders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, today we're going to talk about three of those franchise goalies, Dave Kerr, Chuck Rayner, and Gump Worsley. Now, 
many might remember Worsley. I mean, after all, what he did for the Montreal Canadiens was pretty special. But I think few might be able to might not be able to tell you much about his career with the Rangers. And eventually we're going to talk about Gump. But the guy I want to start with is Dave Kerr. So first, tell us when Dave played and what made him so special. Well, David Kerr had an 11-year NHL career. Uh, He came to the Rangers in December of 1934, and he retired at the end of the 1940-41 season. Um, He... He was the Rangers' first great goaltender when you when you when you think about it, and he, he as as I said before, he was, he was one of the guys who who set the standard for those who would follow. Uh, in the first eight years of the Rangers' existence, the uh, goaltending position was mostly unsettled. There were seven different goalies uh, in and out of the crease during those eight years, including Lester Patrick himself at one point. But once. Uh, Kerr came in that the uh, the uh, goaltending position was in good hands for the next seven seasons. What about his style? Was he a, as they would say today, the proverbial butterfly goalie? Was he an acrobatic goalie? Was he a stand-up goalie? What was his style? Well, back then, all goalies had to be stand-up goalies because there were rules that goaltenders couldn't drop to the ice. Mm. They also couldn't uh, cover up the puck. Uh, so uh, what Davey did, which was pretty uh, ingenious at the time, he had his uh, goalie pads made a little bit higher on the thigh so that um, so that uh, he could catch the puck and, and uh, drop it into his pads, you know, to stop play. So but, uh, he, he was, in, uh, he was an uh, innovator. Uh-huh. Um, he came to the Rangers out of uh, necessity. Um, yeah, yeah, he and, played for the Montreal Maroons, and yes. you know, I guess he was a decent goalie with Montreal. Why did they trade him to the Rangers? Well, at the time, they needed cash, and the Rangers needed a uh, goaltender. The Rangers opened up the uh, 1933 um, 1934 season, uh, now 3435 season, with uh, Andy Aikenhead, who was. Uh, that's that's A I T K E N H E A D Aikenhead, mm-hmm. and um, they had won a cup with him in 1933. But the following year, he started uh, the uh, the pressures of the uh, goaltending uh, job. You know, uh, really got to him, and he had uh, what they call the uh, nervous breakdown. Whether it was or not, you know, is you know left to to our our uh, imaginations. Hmm. But and um, you know so after um, uh, you know after that happened he uh, actually uh, regained his uh, composure and played the rest of the season and the playoffs. But when they opened up the uh, following season, uh, Andy went uh, three and eight. He he lost um, um, he, he lost eight of his first eleven games. And he let in uh, 37 goals mm. in that time. So Lester Patrick uh, decided that he wanted to get uh, another goalie, and he brought in a guy named Percy Jackson from the Boston Bruins. He traded a defenseman named Jean Puzy hmm. to uh, the Bruins. 
And Percy came in. He played one game with the Rangers, led in eight goals, and he was promptly <laughs> shipped back to the Bruins. So then, so then um, Patrick went to um, the uh, Maroons, and they brought in Kerr because, and for the uh, with the fee of ten thousand dollars, which was the going price of. Uh, of a goaltender's back in back in that time, and you know from that time on, um, he uh, played his first game in uh, December of 1934, and for the next seven years he only missed one game. Yeah, so that's incredible. A very, uh, the durability, durable performer. Yeah, yeah, and when you consider they didn't wear a mask back then, nope, nope, and like nope. you said, they weren't allowed to go down to the ice. The nope, fact that. Nope. That that he only missed one game is just it's mind boggling. Yeah, yeah. You know Both when he was very tough. You know it was it was a hard position back then because you know even if they got hurt, they had to go back in. They had to go get sewn but sewn it sewn up, um, get their broken noses reset and go back in. Whether the the pain was still there or not, they that was. That was what they had to do, you know. Unless they were really, in, in, you know, incapacitated, they had to go back in. Did 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 the teams carry two or three goalies at that time, or was it basically no. you had one goaltender and one. he would get a certain amount of time to get fixed up if something happened? They got ten to him. minutes. Uh, later on, when we talk about uh, Chuck Rayner, he'll sure. he'll tell us that uh, that um, the the um, the average time was was a ten minutes. They used to be able to get you know sewn up or whatever and uh if they didn't come back out the team had to put somebody in that or they had to forfeit the game oh man wow yep you know when dave played the nhl had a 48 game schedule and he right. spent seven full seasons with the rangers and in those years only once did he finish a season with a sub 500 record? Just how yeah. good was he? He was very good. He, but, you know, the, the Rangers um, of that era were a very good team anyway, because they did win the Stanley Cup in 1940, mm -hmm. as any Ranger and Islander fan will, <laughs> will uh, attest to. And, um, but, you know, he had a very good team in front of him. He had some of the, some of the better names in, in, uh, he, in in hockey history in front of him, a couple Hall of Famers. Uh, David Kerr is not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I was going to um, get to that in just that, a, in just a that, couple of moments because I have some I have some big questions about the fact that Kerr isn't in and Rayner is. But let's hold off on that for a little bit. Okay. Um, of course, like you said, his best year was thirty nine forty when that culminated in the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup. In that regular season, he was 27-11-10. That's 27 wins, 11 losses, and 10 ties. And he had a 1-5-4 goals against average. He was an all-star. He won the Vezina Trophy as the league's best goalie. In the playoffs, he was 8-4 with a 1-5-6 goals against average. Talk about that year and just how good he was during that 1939-1940 season. What made him so special? Uh, well, there was a uh, there was a 19-19 game uh, on 
on uh, Beaton Street that he, he uh, posted also, 14015. But, you know, much like uh, Mike Richter in 1994, he, that was his uh, career year, and that's what brought the Rangers to the uh, to the finals and, and to the Stanley Cup. Um, his best moments as a Ranger were probably during those 1940 playoffs when uh, in the uh, semifinals against Boston, the Rangers had won the first game in the series, but they lost the next two. And they were, you know, they had a win. They were uh, in trouble. So Kerr shut out the Bruins, won nothing in the next two games, and he held them to a single goal in the 4-1 victory that put the Rangers in, in, uh, into the finals. Mm-hmm. And then, and then when he got to the finals, he um, he played very well against the uh, Maple Leafs. He won two games that went into a sudden death overtime, and um, and and you know, had he not played that well, and had he not been able to to, uh, to get it together against uh, the Bruins in the in the uh, semifinals, the Rangers' 54 years uh, cup drought would have been a lot longer. So <laughs> yeah. we can all thank can all thank Davy Kerr for that. Yeah, sure. You could probably add another 10 or 11 years on that uh, on that. Well, sure. seven years sure. on that drought. Sure. Yeah. So 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 uh, you know, I wanted to go back to something else you talked about his unique leg pads where where he he had that extra space or he curved them out so he could he he could hide the puck um where did he get that idea and and how unique was it and how did it help him well you know, like like i said he could he could uh, drop the puck in there and and uh the referee loses sight of the puck and he's got to stop play but um um, he was the only one that I that that did that. Maybe the first one, first goaltender who did that. But but all goalies back then had to think of ways to um, to stop play because uh, you know even if they fell, it fell accidentally, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, they would stop play. But um, but early on, they were not allowed to uh, drop to the ice or cover the puck, and it, the uh, the uh, crease was smaller. Um, the rules were really uh, not uh, in favor of uh, the goaltender in those days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the goaltender was just someone to stand in front of the net and 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 you know, hopefully, you know, block the shots. And Even someone the padding the the wall was 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 thin, paper thin, and they 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 hardly wore any uh, padding at all. And uh, it was a tough job. And like we said, no masks, and you know they had to have a lot of guts to stand back there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, another right. thing that he did during that time was he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. How big right. was that? That was in March of 1938, and it was uh, it was very big because he was the first active hockey player to appear on the on the cover. Uh, it was a uh, portrait uh, by artist S.J. Wolf, and um, it was a big deal because uh, the the uh, two biggest stars in hockey at the, at the time, Eddie Shaw and Howie Morenz, hadn't been on Time Magazine yet, and they wouldn't get on until uh, the the uh, 1950s. So um, when um, when uh, Maurice Richard was 
was on the cover. So mm-hmm. it was a big deal at the time. But, you know, Kerr was a fan favorite. People people liked him in uh, New York, and he, he, was, a, he was a big uh, fan favorite. You know, he had some pretty remarkable stats over his career. One season, he had 11 shutouts. And again, and again we're talking 11 shutouts in a 48-game season. And yeah. like we were just talking about, in he, he had four shutouts in the Stanley Cup playoff of 1940 when it was just a two-round tournament. You had the semifinals and you had the finals. Right. You know, those are some pretty hefty numbers. And Overall, his record was 157 wins, 110 losses with 57 ties over a seven-year career with the Rangers to go along with a 2.04 goals against average. Again, pretty hefty. Now, the next guy we're going to talk about and who we just referred to uh, a short time ago is Chuck Rayner, and he is in the Hall of Fame. Now, Kerr, whose overall record in his 11 seasons was 204 wins, 149 losses, and 76 ties, with a 2.14 goals against average. He's not in the Hall of Fame. How is Dave Kerr not in the Hall of Fame? And when we discuss Rayner, I think it's really going to leave people scratching their heads. How is Dave Kerr, or why is Dave Kerr not in the Hall of Fame? That's a good question. Uh, people have been asking that for a long while. Um, maybe he didn't get the um, the push from uh, the Rangers or... Um, Whatever has to be done. He, when he left the Rangers, he really didn't um, leave on good terms. Um, he 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 left because he um, was still young. He was only thirty-one years old, I think. But he he found uh, you know uh, year-round uh, employment as a um, in the uh, the hotel business in uh, Toronto. And he also got tired of ha- having to haggle with Lester Patrick over his uh, contract every year. Mm-hmm. So that might have something to do with it. So, you know, maybe, maybe you know, uh, you got to get a little push from the team you played for, and maybe he just didn't get that. Hmm. Interesting. Hey, a little aside here. One of the teams that Dave Kerr played for was the New York Americans. Now, right. the metropolitan area of New York has three teams right now today, the Rangers, the Islanders, and the New Jersey Devils. For a few years back in the 20s and 30s, there was another team in New York as well, the New York Americans. Can you tell us anything about the Americans and what happened to it? Yes, um uh World War II happened to uh to the uh, Americans. Um they were always the um the uh you know stepchild of Madison Square Garden and um they um and their last year they changed their name to the Brooklyn uh Americans. They still played at the Garden but they changed their name to the Brooklyn Americans. Uh Chuck Rain actually played for them. Um and um they uh, folded when um, world when the players came back from World War II, and an interesting thing about it was their their um, their their uh, coach 
and the general manager was a guy named Red Dutton, who um, who actually uh, um, had the uh, agreement that that when he wanted to uh, to uh, come back, the you know league would let him in again. Hmm. And uh, when when he wanted to come back. Madison Square Garden, who owned who owned the Rangers and and uh, who he he would have to rent the ice from, said no, they didn't want him back, so he didn't have a place to play. So they never came back uh, into business, and Red put a curse on the Rangers, and um, <laughs> he said that the Rangers would not win the Stanley Cup again until he until he uh, passed away. Now, he died in 1985, and Rangers didn't win until 1994. So the but they didn't win during the yeah it. they didn't win again during his lifespan. No, no. Hey, Kerr also played for the other Montreal team, the Maroons, who we talked about earlier. What happened to the Montreal Maroons? They just uh, you know they just folded. Uh, the NHL back then they had uh, ten teams. And, you know, little by little teams would fold and move. And um, they finally got down to seven teams in the 40s, uh, the original six plus the uh, Americans. And then when the uh, Americans folded, they got down to the original six, which lasted until the first uh, expansion. Right. So uh, let's wrap up Dave Kerr here. For his career in 40 playoff games, he had a 1.74 goals against average and a Stanley Cup championship. He also had eight shutouts over the course of his playoff career. Again, I ask, just how good was Dave Kerr? And why is he not spoken about? When the conversation turns to the greatest goalies to have played the game. What does he lack? I did read where he was really low-key and unassuming, but still, his yeah. numbers are terrific. Yeah, yeah. He had a he had a very good uh, glove hand. He had very good reflexes. He used to challenge his teammates to practice by, 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 um, by uh, spread-eagling himself between the post and putting his... Is a glove, his uh, stick flat on the ice, and having them try to shoot it past him, just using his his uh, glove hands. Um, he was very agile. He he was a he was a very good goaltender, but as you said, he just never got the recognition. Hmm, interesting. Okay, let's move on now to Chuck Rayner. And before we get into his remarkable career. You have first got to tell us about one of his nicknames, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Where did it come from, and what does it mean? Well, Chuck Rainer's name is really Claude. First of all, his name—you'd think with a name like Chuck, his name would be Charles, but it's mm. not. It's Chuck. It's it's a Claude Earl Rainer. Um, the uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie was given to him by the uh, by the press while he was with the Rangers. Uh, I have no no knowledge of why he was called Bonnie Prince Charlie, but that's what he was called by you know by uh, by the press. While uh, he was known as Chuck from from the time he was a kid, so that's that's where that's where Chuck came from. But um, he um, he had a ten year NHL career, and he he um, he was a good goaltender. Sure, and. 
One of the most remarkable facts about Rayner's career is this. He never finished a season with more wins than losses. Every year he was under 500. His overall career record in the NHL was 138 wins, 207 losses, and 78 ties. He played just 10 years, eight with the Rangers, with whom he went 123 wins, 179 losses, and 73 ties. And yet, Chuck Rayner, and this is where we go back to Kerr, Dave Kerr was not elected to the Hall of Fame. Chuck Rayner was elected into the Hall of Fame. How is that possible? I mean, I know. how good was he? I, 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 I'm so confused here. Again, Chuck is in and Dave <laughs> isn't. How does that make sense? Well, I, 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 I said in the intro to, to uh, Chuck in my book, I said that he, he uh, never won a Stanley Cup. He didn't set any records. But he he provided the Rangers with with eight years of solid goaltending when they were trying to rebuild themselves from the ashes of World War II. Um, he was a he was the he was the rock that that um, that uh, Frank Boucher built the Rangers around in those days. Uh, he was the, the one guy they could uh, depend upon. And um, but he, is that he, is that he, Hall uh, of Fame worthy? Uh, I, I don't know. I I'm not on the committee. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't even. I wasn't even uh, uh, alive when Chuck was. Uh, <laughs> well, I was born in '51, so I was alive. But you know, he um, people loved him. He he had a um, look at uh, look at uh, Eddie Jockerman. You know, Eddie Jockerman never won the Stanley Cup either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. But he he will often say he he will admit that that the love of the fans in New York is what put him in the Hall of Fame because he he says I I don't have the records I didn't have a Stanley Cup but um, the, the the fans loved me so much that that's what got me into the Hall of Fame and apparently Chuck had that kind of following in in uh, New York too. Sure. I mean, there's there there's players in all sports that make the Hall of Fame who have never played for a winning team. It's just, to me, it's just one of these weird numbers that a guy who won a Stanley Cup finished his career with so many, you know, finished his career so far over 500, does not get in. And the guy who didn't win the cup never even finished a season at 500 didn't make it. It's it's one of those mind-boggling stats that just it 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 just doesn't make sense. But that's not. You have to yeah. look back too. Uh, you know, back in uh, that back in uh, Davy Crow's day, uh, I would have to look and see what other goaltenders of his era. Uh, made it into, into the Hall of Fame because maybe back then goaltenders weren't really that well uh, well uh, appreciated mm-hmm. as they should be. They mm-hmm. just weren't giving given you know the credit. Uh, they all say goaltenders are uh, are are blamed for a loss and they hardly ever get credit for a win. So sure. Well, maybe the NHL or the Hockey Hall of Fame should go the route of the Baseball Hall of Fame and re-examine some things with a Veterans Committee. The but Veterans Committee. Yeah. That's a conversation for another time. Let's get back to Chuck here. And in reading your book, one of the 
more remarkable notes about Rayner was, or fun notes, was that he always tried to score a goal. And we know that very few goalies have actually scored an actual goal. Um, they they sometimes might have been the last player to touch the puck and somebody else will score, you know, an own goal. But right. um, he always tried to score a goal, and he actually did it when he was playing with the Royal Canadian Navy. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, he was in the Navy, and uh, they were playing uh, a game. And, uh, uh, you know, the shot came, and he made the save. And while while the rest of the players basically were behind him and behind the net, he uh, he uh, grabbed the rebound and just skated up ice. And uh, he was always a good skater. And um, he, he just put his head down and sped up ice. And he uh, shot. He, he, he went over the red line, went over the blue line, and he shot the puck past... Uh, uh, Art Jones, who was the opposing uh, goaltender, and um, that was the it's, it's it's actually the only goaltender on record to have ever scored a goal that way. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So you know when you when we look at a goalie today, a goaltender today, and we look at all the equipment they're wearing, what was the equipment? How did the equipment compare back then in size? and weight and, you know, bulkiness as compared to what it is today? Was it easier for a goalie to to skate and move up ice like Rayner did? The pads, the uh, the uh, leg pads alone, uh, when they got wet from the, from the ice and everything, they were said to, to weigh uh, 40 pounds. So um, Per pad or total? Uh, each of them. Wow. So... No, uh, for the pair, for the pair. I'm sorry. Okay, still and, forty uh, pounds is forty pounds. You know, if you go into a, a sporting goods store today and pick up a pair of goalie pads, either gloves or the leg pads, they're light as a feather. Mm-hmm. There's there's very light, and if you if you had picked up a pair um, ten fifteen years ago, they were made of horsehair and uh, leather, and they were heavy as anything. You know, mm-hmm. and you know you see pictures of uh, of uh, your goaltenders on on uh, Facebook. Uh, there's a picture of uh, Terry Sorchek I always refer to that he's got a blocker on his right hand that looks like it weighs a ton. It's just this big bulky thing that I imagine gets 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 wet and gets heavier than it than it is, and just a huge, big, heavy thing. Well, pretty remarkable that that a goalie was actually able to get the puck and skate up ice and score a goal. I, I wish I could have seen it. It had to have been uh, a sight. Yeah. Well, uh, when, when he came back to to the NHL, he he was on the Rangers because he was on the Americans and they had folded. So he became a free agent and he came to the Rangers and Frank Boucher, the coach actually used him on the power play. He used, used to uh, have him skate up, you know, leave his crease and, and uh, skate up uh, around the red line area and, uh, you know, be able to, to shoot pucks back in from there. And um, mm. he actually, and uh, um, when he was with the Rangers, uh, the, they had, 
They had Chuck and they had... Um, yeah, I was going to get to this. I know where you're going. So he was part of what I would say is an odd experiment when Boucher was there. And he treated Rayner and Sugar Jim Henry like mm-hmm. skaters. And he had them switch out every five minutes or so. What was that about? And how did Rayner and Henry respond to that system? I've never seen anything like that. No. Well, um, yeah, Boucher was an, uh, was an innovator. So you got to give him credit for that. Um, yeah, they, they used, he used to, he used to, uh, uh, switch them back and forth in five minute intervals or whatever, maybe by period and everything. But the funny thing is the story that was told, which I'm not really sure I believe was that the two, uh, goaltenders shared one pair of of uh, goalie gloves, and they had to switch. They had to they had to uh, swap off the uh, goalie gloves uh, right at you know center ice when they were switching uh, you know between the guy on the bench and the guy on the net. I'm not sure. I I believe that because what goalie do you know who doesn't have his own pair of gloves? Yeah, sure. So I'm not sure. Now maybe that maybe it happened once. Maybe somebody left their gloves in the dressing room or something, but. You know, I can't see it happening all the time, but it was. But but you know, it's a it's a something that has been told. So, and um, uh, Chuck and and uh, and uh, Sugar Jim were actually business partners on, on in the off season. They had a hunting lodge business, so they were good friends and they they knew each other. So they they um, they were um, you know. Uh, probably okay with the situation. Did did were, did Boucher make the shift when the whistle blew, or or was it during yeah. live action? Yeah, well, yeah, you'd have to you'd have to do when the whistle blew right. because uh, you'd have to get the, the the goalies to go get over the the boards, and uh, with those big pads on it, it might might not have been so easy <laughs> for them to get over the boards, you know. So, uh, (laughs) and that, uh, ended that, uh, experiment ended when, um, when the Rangers needed help down in their minor league team for uh, goaltending. And they also needed offense up, up in, uh, the NHL level and they couldn't afford to have, uh, an extra goalie when they needed someone who could score goals. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but that's when that ended actually, um, uh, after after it ended, after the uh, experiment ended, uh, Raina had a had a uh, broken ankle, and um, he was out for the rest of the season. No, actually, broken cheekbone, and he was out for the rest of the season. And Henry played uh, the rest of the year. But when they got into the playoffs, uh, Chuck was was all right by then, and he came back, and uh, he played um, in the playoffs. That year. Now, now, Chuck's best season came in 1949-1950, and that's when he was 28 wins, 30 losses, and 11 ties, and he had a 2.62 goals against average. He won the Hart Trophy as the NHL's MVP. So tell us about that season and just how good he was. And all of that, of course, 
that's going to lead us into the incredible run he and the Rangers had in the playoffs. So first, just how good was Chuck during that regular season? Well, he had a 2.62 goal against average, and he, he played very well. You know, um, he had the Rangers playing in front of him, too, don't forget. Even, even though they were a good team, they were still the Rangers. And the Rangers always had a way of uh, grabbing uh, defeat out of the uh, jaws of victory. Sort of like they so, have in recent times. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, you know, you got to give him credit. And he, he stood in there, and he... he um, you know the uh, the press called the, t- the team the New York Rangers in honor of his um, his uh, his play in the net. They beat Montreal in the f- first round four to one, mm-hmm. but they lost to the, um, the Red Wings four, uh, three games to four um, in the finals. Now all those games are on the road. The, the, the yeah, I want to get to that, but before before we go there, I do have a question about the playoffs particularly the way they were set up. I don't know if you can answer this. Normally, you would have the first-place team play the fourth-place team and the second-place team play the third-place team. Right. But the NHL arranged it that the second-place team played the fourth and the first-place team played the third. Do you know why that was? The NHL did things very differently. Um, even back back when there was seven teams in the league, six six teams made the playoffs, and the first and the second place team played a seven game series. The uh, third and fourth place team played a two out of three game series. Huh. The fifth and the sixth game uh, place team came played two out of three. Those two teams played each other for the right to play whoever won. You know, one between the first and the second place team. So wow. it's, you know, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to the way things were done uh, from the outside, from the inside. They might've had their reasons, but you know, mm-hmm. um, that's, but uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to figure out how they did things. Just gotta, um, just gotta go with it and mm-hmm. put down the facts. Mm-hmm. Now, in that semifinal against Montreal, the Rangers, well, they thumped the Canadians four games to one. In the five games, Chuck gave up just seven goals. He shut out Montreal in game five, three, nothing. How surprising was it that the Rangers ousted Montreal in five games? And again, I ask, how good was Rayner and was he the difference? Oh, yeah. He was. Um, he 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 was hot. He he was he was the hot goalie, the the ultimate hot goalie that you that they always talk about, getting a hot goalie in the playoffs. Well, he was the hot guy, and um, and as I said too, all those games are on the road because uh, uh, you know uh, Ringling Brothers Circus had moved into the Garden, and in those days, they. They, the the uh, management of the garden really didn't care that much about the Rangers, and they should just shift them out of town. They only had two home games uh, that that were that were designated as home games. Yeah, they Maple Leaf in, Gardens. In Maple Leaf Gardens. So how how so how did that affect the team? I mean, they, sure they they beat Montreal four games to one. 
And that battle between the Rangers and the Red Wings went seven games. And, you know, five of those seven games were played in Detroit with the other two in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens with the Rangers acting as the home team. Big deal. Big deal. I mean, Detroit and Toronto are are so close. So how unfair was that to the Rangers? And did that really come into play in, in the Rangers not being able to pull off the upset and beat the Red Wings? Well, they, they say, too, that since the, the Red Wings and the Maple Leafs had such a rivalry going, the, uh, the fans in, in uh, Maple Leaf Gardens uh, cheers for Rangers. So uh, that, that was basically their home crowd, but, but it's not really their home crowd. They're not playing in their home arena, and uh, it hurt them. But um, that's that's the way Madison Square Garden ran things back then. Um, mm-hmm. It only changed in the six, early 60s when Emil Francis came along, and he, he uh, insisted that if you want me to take this job, we got to play our home, home playoff games. Because he was with the um, 1950 Rangers. He was, uh, he was Charlie's backup if, if it was ever needed. He was, he was there to play if... Um, Arena ever got hurt in those playoffs, so he he knew how how hard it was to play all those games on the road and and just not come home, you know. Mm-hmm. Now the last game of that series certainly won for the ages. It was the first time ever that a game seven went into overtime, and actually, it went into double overtime. And at eight thirty one of the second overtime period, that's when Detroit's Pete Babando scored to give the Red Wings, the win, and the Stanley Cup. The NHL didn't keep shots on goal or saves or, you know, those kinds of records. But I can only imagine how Chuck was able to keep the Rangers in the game and in the series. Was anything ever written or said about, you know, how important or how crucial to the team Rayner was, and had he not been there, the Rangers, well, they might not have even made the Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have gotten to the finals. Uh, Chuck Chuck once said that his his biggest uh, regret was not making that save, and um, he said he didn't see the puck until it was past him. So um, he almost stole that series for the Rangers, didn't he? Oh yeah, sure, yeah, almost, you know. But it's you know that's 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 um that's hockey history for you, you know. <laughs> sure. You know, as good as the Rangers were in those playoffs that year, and as good as Rayner was, they just were unable to keep any momentum the following season and it was back to normal for the team. Take away Chuck Rayner. How bad were those teams? How much worse would the Rangers have been without Chuck Rayner? Oh, yeah. Well, that that was a time of uh, transition, too, because uh, Lynn Patrick was their coach, and he took them to the the finals. And at the end of the season, he quit. He, he left the Rangers, and he said he didn't want to raise the children children in New York. But he turned around and took a, a nice offer from uh, the Adams family up in uh, Boston, and he became their coach. So um, the Rangers were back to uh, square one. They they had a good thing going, and they went back had to go back to square one. And um, so that didn't help them at all. 
Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, Chuck played it another five years, but um, he started to run into injuries, and um, that's that's how he got into uh, Gumpa Worsley. But, um, but, you know, Chuck, um, you know, was a warrior. Uh, the fans loved him, and he was a warrior. Yeah, mm-hmm. People remember, people remember the, 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 the one game when he stopped a, a shot point blank with his forehead and they had to carry him off the ice and they, there was a long stream of blood, uh, going from the crease to the locker room. And, uh, and as I said, they only had 10 minutes to, um, to get, uh, sewn up. And the referee who happened to be, uh, King Clancy that night, uh, opened the door and said, time. So they had to go back out, and he hey, he went back up out on the ice with a with his head wrapped up with uh, with the bandages. He had a turban of bandages around his head. So he he, he was a warrior. They, you know, they were all warriors back then. Mm-hmm. They did what they had to do. That was their job. Compared to the other goalies of his era, guys like Terry Sawchuk and Bill Dernan and Turk Broda, where does Chuck Rayner fit in? Um. Probably, um, he, he, he's right up there. I mean, uh, the um, the goalies of the fifties and the sixties—that was the golden age of uh, of uh, goaltending. And you had six teams, and you only had six jobs. You had the, the best six goaltenders uh, in hockey playing in the NHL, and there were at least twice that many down in the minor leagues who, who, who probably just as good, but they just didn't get that break. And, um, and Chuck was one of them. Chuck, Chuck, um, and you know, that's why, that's why too, they came back because they, they only have one year contracts and, um, you get hurt, you know, somebody comes in and takes your place. They might take a job. So you, you've got to go back in and, um, you know, do your job. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. Lorne Gump Worsley. Now, I don't think he's your typical forgotten hero. In fact, Worsley won four Stanley Cups with the Canadians, and I think most hockey fans would remember Gump, and those four Stanley Cups is probably what he's best remembered for. He played with Montreal for seven years and later for the Minnesota North Stars for another five years. The part of his career, I think, that most might forget is that he was the Rangers' number one goalie for 10 years before he went to Montreal. And he won the Calder Cup as the NHL's Rookie of the Year in 1953. So first, when looking back at his career, summarize his time with the Rangers. I think the highlight of his career was in June of 1964 when he got traded to Montreal because he just got, <laughs> he got out of the he got out of the Rangers situation because he would never have had the um, the honors that he he gained in Montreal with the Rangers. Um, he he won the Rookie of the Year that year, and that that summer the Rangers uh, acquired uh, Johnny Bauer from the Cleveland Barons. And um, the next, and and before training camp the next season, uh, Gump, you know, since he won the the call the trophy, he asked for a raise. He asked for a five hundred dollar raise, and they sent him to the minors because of that. And they 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 gave the job to uh, Johnny Bauer. Now Bauer's a fine goalie, and he went on to um, 
to great fame in in uh, in uh, Toronto, but um, Gump Gump always held that against the Rangers that they sent him down for for uh, for asking for a five hundred dollar raise. Can you mm. imagine that? Mm. No, I can't. I really can't. Five hundred dollars. Wow. Hey, where did the nickname Gump come from? Uh, apparently, there was a um, a cartoon character named uh, Andy Gump back in the twenties, and and uh, Gump and uh, Lawn had a uh, child childhood resemblance to him, and they started calling him Gump. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look through the annals, the annals of uh, hockey lore, he's the only he's the only Gump. So he's he he's uh, unique. He's is. That's his. That's his nickname. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think football fans might remember just how fearful former Raiders coach and television analyst John Madden was when it came to flying. Gump was also very fearful of flying. So, what caused this fear, and what are how did he compensate for it? What did he do? I mean, after all, not flying isn't really an option for a professional athlete. Well, Gump, Gump's fear of flying came when he was in the um, in the Houston Hockey League with um, the uh, New York Rovers. They were flying back from um, um, Milwaukee for a game, and um, the the, uh, the twin engine plane that he was on one of the engines blew out. And they had to make a uh, uh, quick landing, and. Um, he uh, never got over his fear of flying after that. He used to take the train as much as possible. Like in the in the six team league, anyway, you could you could take the train um, because the the uh, the, uh, the, the uh, west team would be Chicago. But uh, when they when they got to uh, expansion, you know, flying was something that had to be done. And actually, that when. When Gump uh, was with Montreal, um, he quit uh, one one year. Um, he was on a he was on a bumpy flight to uh, the West Coast with the Montreal Canadiens, and they landed in Chicago to change planes. And he went up to the team captain John Bellabeau and said, "I quit," and he took the train home. Oh, man. And uh, but the the uh, the management of the of uh, Montreal wanted to keep him, so they. They they sent to uh, a uh, uh, to um, you know classes on how to deal with um, his fear and uh, he actually came back for the playoffs that year but uh, he always had a fear of flying. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one to overcome, especially for a professional athlete when yes. you have to go coast to coast. Hey, you know, you, 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 you referred to this earlier that, you know, his first few years were rough and he was up and down between the Rangers and their minor league team, even though he had won the Calder Cup, as you had said. He was still sent down, and that's because of this $500 raise he had asked for, and it upset management. But he and the Rangers really didn't see eye to eye on a couple of things, and one of them was his size. He was five foot seven and weighed all of a hundred and eighty pounds. How did that affect how the Rangers perceived him? Well, one of his coaches with the Rangers was a guy named Phil Watson. Watson was also his coach with the New York Rovers, but uh, Watson didn't like 
uh, Gump, and Gump didn't like Watson. Watson, they said, was the kind of coach who would take credit for a win and blame his players for a loss. And he was not well-liked. And he was always getting on Gump about his weight. He was always ta- saying he had a beer belly. And um, Gump said, I don't drink beer, I drink VO. And um, so that's, <laughs> that's um, how he got back at him. And um, Gump, you know, he might not have looked very athletic, but he was. He would go down and bounce right back up again. He would get back on up on his feet very quickly. And he had a way of swatting the puck away. He, he had like a one-handed uh, golf swing that would, that would make contact with the puck and knock it over the over the glass usually, and his the the blade of his stick would end up over his his other shoulder, kind of like uh, Peter Townsend with his uh, windmill uh, ah. thing with the who, kind of like that. And um, but but he was very athletic, and and you know you'd have to be to to, to play at the NHL for twenty one years, and sure. um, he was uh, he you know it was. You know, it was odd. He looked heavy, but he was very, very quick, very agile, very athletic. Now, of course, he played for the Rangers, and he once said that his toughest opponent was the Rangers, that they gave him more trouble than any other team. That's not a ringing endorsement of the team playing in front of him. Just how bad were their teams Mm -mm. that Gump played on? Well, the Rangers went uh, a good you know, number of years without making the playoffs. Uh, it was you know, usually once every ten years they would make the playoffs, and uh, uh, and they they just weren't very good. Um, as and going back to Madison Square Garden and ownership, it was it wasn't really taken seriously. I don't think they they um, they tried very hard to put a winning team on the ice. They were just. Um, they were just um, concerned about the Rangers paying their own bills, you know, selling out and paying their paying their own way. And um, since they uh, had uh, had the uh, had the uh, you know at the end of the year, if they even if they made the playoffs, they they probably wouldn't have any home games, so there would be no extra income for the for the for the team because of the so, service. Plus, because of the plus service. they would have to. Yeah, right. Plus, they would have to, um, you know, bring the team up to the the other town, uh, uh, feed them, house them for seven games. So uh, it was it was all overhead to them. So um, it was probably no uh, incentive to to uh, make the Rangers any better. Uh, You know, they would make trades. They would trade a, a, a third line guy for another third line guy once in a while and hope for the best. You know. And it just wouldn't happen. Um, uh, Muzz Patrick was the GM when he traded uh, Gump to Montreal for Jacques Plante. And um, that worked out for Gump. And it worked out for the Rangers uh, in a way because as part of that trade, they got Donnie Marshall and Phil Loyette, who were big parts of the the, uh, early Emil Francis era. But uh, Plant, when he came down here, he 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 uh, was a bust because mm-hmm. um, he didn't have the Montreal Canadiens in front of him. Mm-hmm. He had the Rangers in front of him, so you could you could look at it that way too. Um, you know, Gump went up to Montreal and he had the Canadiens in front of him. He saw less shots, he saw less rebounds, and he won 
cups and uh, visiting the trophies and things that he would not have done if he was still with the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess part of the reason the Rangers weren't that good also was due to the fact that they couldn't keep a coach. And in Gump's 10 years with the Rangers, he played for seven coaches. Now, the other thing is the coaches probably didn't want to work for the Rangers because of things that you had just discussed, like the circus coming to town at the end of the year and the Rangers not being able to have a home game in the playoffs during the end of the year. So I guess one went with the other. But one thing was for sure. Gump Worsley was really durable. I mean, heck, he even played every second of every game in the 1955-56 season. And here, people had this opinion of him that, especially Phil Watson, that this guy wasn't in shape. He played every second of every game for an entire season. Talk about his durability. He was the uh, last Ranger, Ranger goaltender to uh, do that, actually. Uh, Gump, Gump was a warrior as well. Um, there's there's uh, um, uh, a uh, number of times when he was hurt, he was carried off the ice. Um, he, he had, his, uh, he had uh, Bobby Hull skate over his hand and uh, rip tendons in his hand, and he ripped tendons in his knee. He was knocked out. Uh, many times, and um, uh, when he can, when he could return, he did, and he he was a very very um, tough goaltender. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, hard to knock out of the box. So <laughs> hard to knock out of the box. Durable, played every second of every game. But is it possible that he is the only player ever to sit out a game because of getting hit with an? Egg? Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> when yeah, well, see, that's that's the New York fans too. They love you when you're here, but when you come back with the, with the other team's jersey on, you're you're a bum. Um, after he got traded to Montreal uh, in 1966, he came back to play a game at towards the end of the season against the Rangers in the Old Garden, and the old the Old Garden was um, the um, you know, the seats were very close to the ice. The balcony was very close to the ice. And somebody threw a, a hard-boiled egg at him and hit him in the head. And um, this was this was during warm-ups. And um, uh, Rogi Vashon had to take his place. And Gump uh, actually showed up at practice the next day, but he was uh, he was dizzy and he felt nauseous, and he ended up, up having a concussion, and he missed six, week, six weeks of play. So... <laughs> A hockey puck couldn't take him out, but a hard-boiled That's right. egg could. That's, right. That's crazy. Now, had he seen the, the, the egg coming, he probably would have caught it. But <laughs> <laughs> Hey, why did the Rangers ultimately trade him, and how unceremonious was it? Um. I think I think Muz, I, I think there's 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 a, there's a quite a few factors there. I think uh, Muz Patrick wanted to make a splash, and uh, Montreal uh, uh, the Montreal coach uh, Phil Blake had gotten tired of um, Jacques Plante because he, he was always um, 
complaining about uh, allergies and illnesses, some real, some not real, and um, he couldn't rely on him after a while. And uh, so I think uh, Montreal is shopping him around. And, of course, uh, uh, they didn't want to uh, trade him to one of their rivals because that would just make them better. But uh, trading him to, let's say, the Bruins or the Rangers wouldn't hurt wouldn't hurt Montreal at all. And, uh, in fact, um, if you look at the, those Rangers in those days, they didn't have any problem in uh, in goal. So if if you uh, gave them um, a plant, it wouldn't change uh, the way they play because they would still be good in goal, but they still wouldn't be able to score goals or, or um, keep, uh, keep the shots down. So I think um, that's how um, that's how uh, the trade was made um, when the uh, when the Montreal players. Uh, were told about the trade. They, I, I don't think anyone, you know, was upset. In fact, uh, Henri uh, Richard said that uh, we were surprised when no one was upset. Yeah. So, um, so they, you know, they weren't unhappy to see him go because um, Plant was um, when when I spoke to Emil Francis about him, uh, he said that he used to drive drive the trainers uh, crazy. He had a piece of equipment for everything. He had seventy five pieces of equipment, and he just he just had some. He had pads for everything. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You know, not only was he traded, but like I said, my question it was somewhat unceremonious. You know, I hear he had played for the Rangers yeah. for ten years, gave them everything he had. And he learned of the trade from a neighbor? Yeah, his neighbor told him to turn on the radio, listen to the sports on the radio. And Gump, when he was alive, he said that uh, he was still waiting for the call to, to uh, tell him that uh, he had been traded. So, and yeah, it's, yes, it was, it was very cold. It was very, um, very um, uh, unsportsmanlike. It just wasn't the way that things should have been done back then. But, uh mm-hmm. That and you know that might have something to do with the the Rangers' uh, plight as well. Mm-hmm. You know, after his playing days with Montreal were over, the newly formed Minnesota North Stars signed him, and you know he ended up playing there with Cesar Maniago. Can you talk at all about Gump's time in Minnesota? Yeah, he was um, he was there to. Um, to uh, settle down the um, Minnesota goaltending uh, situation, he he backed up uh, Maniago. He did a little coaching on the side. Uh, Maniago and him became fast friends. They were known as Mutton Jeff because uh, Maniago was six foot two or three, big tall guy, and uh, Gump was you know little guy, five seven, five seven, and um, it was in Minnesota that. Uh, that uh, Maniago uh, had him wear a mask. It was the first time he wore a mask in his career. Mm-hmm. Was the, the, his last season with uh, Minnesota mm-hmm. after Maniago talked him into it. When Gump, well, Gump played until he was forty-four years old, and that's when he hung up his skates for good. And his time with Minnesota wasn't that bad. I mean, we're talking about a newly formed team, and he won 39 games, lost 37, and he was in the net for 24 ties. Did he enjoy his time with Minnesota? 
Yeah, he um, he uh, actually um, uh, stayed with the uh, franchise for a number of years after that as a scout. So he uh, he must have enjoyed his time with uh, with the uh, North Stars. Uh, he he. He, um, you know, it was, it was the kind of thing too where he didn't have to travel. He, you know, they would they would carry three goalies, and Gump would uh, would only play if he's going to play. He was only play playing at home, oh, so he wouldn't have to fly. So mm-hmm. He wouldn't have to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cesar and maybe uh, maybe uh, Gary Bowman were the the other two goaltenders, and they would travel with the team, and and when they would come home. Uh, if Gump was going to play, he would play at home. So uh, mm-hmm. it was. So the uh, you know the flying part was was uh, out of the picture. So that made Gump very happy. Mm-hmm. Was his time with the Rangers a disappointment? Um, I I don't know. I I think he was happy to be in the NHL because, as we said before, there was only six teams and six jobs, and he was happy to have one of them. Uh, you figure out of when he played, out of those six uh, uh, teams and six guys who were playing goal, uh, four of them ended up in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and uh, now actually five of them ended up in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and everybody except uh, the Bruin goalies. And um, so he, you know, he'd have to be uh, be happy just to be in in the league making. Making NHL money, five hundred dollar raise or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, George, you're 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 definitely a New York Rangers historian, and you know more about the Rangers than most people do. So, when you were writing Guardians of the Goal, what did you learn that really surprised you? That you said, "Wow, I got to find out more about this." Well, there's there's a. Uh there was a guy uh, in the 40s, in the uh, 1942-43 season, the Rangers, that was the first year that the Rangers were really affected by World War II. And they opened up training camp that year with no goaltender. And you believe that. Um, wow. They, and they brought in a guy named Steve Bozinski, whose nickname was the Puck Gozinski, <laughs> because he, just, he wasn't a very good goaltender. And he lasted nine games, and then he brought in a guy named Jimmy Franks, and uh, I guess luckily for him, he broke his arm midway through the season, so he was gone. Then they brought in Bill uh, Beveridge from the Cleveland Barons, on loan from the Cleveland Barons. And in the last game of the season, with the Rangers firmly ensconced in last place, um, the Cleveland Barons wanted Bill Beveridge back for their playoff run. So... The Rangers, the last game of the season, they had no goaltender. And they were playing the Montreal Canadiens, who needed to win the game to make the playoffs. So out of the goodness of their heart, Montreal uh, volunteered to loan the Rangers one of their farmhand goaltenders named Lionel Bouverette. Lionel Bouverette went in, played one game for the Rangers, gave up six goals. Uh, Montreal won the game, and the Rangers went home. Hmm. Montreal went to the playoffs, and the Rangers went home. Hmm. And and in all my research, I didn't find anyone anywhere who raised any kind of hell about it because it smells fishy to me. But it just, it, it, I guess that's just the way the NHL was back then. Hmm. Well, it's always fun to find out stuff like that, and that's part of the reason why I do the podcast. It's because 
some of the information you get is really fun and really interesting. And, and George, you brought a great deal of knowledge and fun to the podcast. And I want to thank you again for being a guest here on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Remind everyone where they can get a copy of your book, Guardians of the Goal. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, um, and other bookstores. I've, I've seen it in um, quite a few other bookstores around. Um, and if you get in touch with me on Facebook, uh, I can send you a signed copy. So That's awesome. George, what are you working on next? Um, actually, I'm working on a, on a book about the uh, Frank Boucher era. Uh, from 1940 through 1955, uh, which will cover the war years, and um, and and um, and uh, also highlight some of the play. It's it's. I think it's going to be called uh, uh, "Forgotten Blue Shirts," because you know, in in the 40s and early 50s, the Rangers had a lot of good players that uh, nobody uh, knows about, nobody thinks about anymore, uh, and. Um, I'd like to bring out those those players, you know, bring your career to um, to the, the public view. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, George. Yeah, go ahead. But that's um, uh, that's a big project. That's a fifteen fifteen season project, and um, it's I'm up to chapter two now, so <laughs> hey, got a long way to go. <laughs> Well, George, thank you again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And when that book is done, please let me know and we'll talk about it. Okay. Thanks for having me on. You got it. When you look at the history of the New York Rangers, the one area they have always been known for is goaltending. They have had some very stellar netminders, including Lorne Shabbat, Johnny Bauer, Jacques Plante, Eddie Jacquemin, John Davidson, John Van Beesbrook, Mike Richter, and now Henrik Lundqvist. All of those names are very recognizable when it comes to the history of hockey, as is Gump Worsley. But the names of Dave Kerr and Chuck Rayner are not near as recognizable, and Worsley is as I've said, is better remembered for his days in Montreal and, in some respect, his days in Minnesota, too. And if you want to learn more about any of these great goalies, check out George's new book, Guardians of the Goal, a comprehensive guide to New York Rangers goaltenders. And if you contact George through Facebook, he'll send you a signed copy. You can always contact me through sportsfh.com and I'll send you George's info as well if you want an autographed copy. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I welcome back Tom Clark to the podcast for a wonderful talk about one of the toughest boxers in recent memory. A boxer who never reached the pinnacle of the sport but certainly gave guys like Ali and Frazier all they could handle. Yes, Tom and I will be talking about the great Jerry Quarry. That's next time. For now, though, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.